In the early days, the films that were made, some of them were very scandalous. They were very direct, showing sex and violence specifically. I find that to be a lot of baloney, because I've looked at films that are considered terribly scandalous by our standards, <laughs> you know, in, in 2023. Uh, forget it, they're, they're not. My name is Audrey Kupferberg, and I am film commentator at WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Today, I'd like to talk about films made in New York State at a time when there was not yet a Hollywood. The pre-Hollywood days are very interesting. In fact, the motion picture patents war took place before Hollywood was established, and I'd like to say a few words about that. Audrey Kupferberg is with us, film commentator for Public Radio, WAMC. She's an emeritus lecturer in film history, the University at Albany, previously was director of the Film Study Center at Yale. She's written books about popular culture, people, and topics, many of them written with her late husband, Rob Edelman. She lives in Amsterdam, New York, where she grew up. I know a little bit about this, Audrey, which is they always say, when you, when you know a little bit about it, it's a dangerous thing. But I, I recall doing a newspaper column about this couple uh, who made m movies of silent films up in uh, Canada Lake. But I mean, that wasn't the only, they weren't the only ones doing that. Yeah, it, it's really amazing how many independent film producers there were in New York State, in Florida, in, in Maine, all, all over the East Coast in particular. Something happened uh, that made it very difficult for a lot of people to make movies. And that was uh, due to the efforts of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison set up his uh, first studio, the Black Mariah, in the 1890s. And uh, he, was, he was making one film after the other. He patented a lot of his uh, detail on equipment. Uh, at that time, there were other people interested in making movies, and they had to go through Edison to acquire their their projectors, their their cameras, uh, and uh, after a while, it it seemed like uh, it wasn't fair that Edison was taking advantage of people who uh, were simply involved in American competition. So a very nasty situation occurred, and it's called the Motion Picture Patents War. Uh, actually, even, even young kids who were delivering film prints on bicycles around 1905, 1910, were attacked. So that's why it's referred to as a war. It really was violent at times. Eventually... The, uh, the American court system got involved and uh, said to Edison, you cannot be a trust, so uh, you, you cannot have full control. And that opened the way for normal competition. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, what was happening was uh, in the earliest days, the 1890s till 1910, 1911, um, 
the East Coast film production was dominant. And uh, you had Fort Lee, New Jersey, and you had certainly the capital of, of motion picture production was New York City. But there were times when people who were producing movies in New York City needed to get out into the countryside. So uh, the the second, or not really the second uh, uh, capital of filmmaking, but certainly an important uh, place where films were made was in the Catskills. Mm -hmm. There was a town called Cuddybackville, <laughs> and... Uh, D.W. Griffith of the Biograph Studios, along with Lillian Gish and Mary Pickford and Owen Moore and Bobby Heron and the whole bunch who were famous filmmakers and actors, would get on a stagecoach and go from New York City up north into the Catskills and uh, stay at the Cutterback Inn and shoot westerns and country films, rural dramas, and this became very popular. Audiences loved the scenery, and it worked. But with Edison, the filmmakers really couldn't stay that close because his people would come after them. That's when, uh, when they branched out. And a man who became very famous named Thomas Ince, I-N-C-E, mm -hmm. uh, he decided he was going to get far away from the East Coast. And he, at first, was involved in making westerns in Oklahoma. And then he went out all the way west to uh, Palisades area of Los Angeles. And uh, he was the first one, really, to start Hollywood. When he got there, he realized the sunshine was fantastic. It was easy to be far away from Edison. So he set up a studio. He uh, organized the producer system that we still have today. That, that was kind of the, the end to the monopoly, uh, along with the court system, killing off Edison's uh, plan. But New York State filmmaking. It, it's impossible for me to to figure all the places w in the state where filmmaking was going on. I did a column about, was a guy named John Lowell Russell and his wife Lillian Lou Case Russell. They were originally from Brooklyn, or they were in Brooklyn making movies, but then moved their operation, at least in the warm weather months, up to not the Catskills, but really to the Adirondacks uh, at Canada Lake, uh, where they made, as you say, Western movies and so forth. And uh, I think it's um, Samantha Hall Saladino, who's the Fulton County historian, uh, came up with this uh, newspaper ad where they advertise in Variety or somewhere like that, that don't stay in the sweltering city during the summer. Come up where it, the prices are cheaper and you, you can rent a studio for half of what you pay in, in New York City. So they did okay for a while up there, but eventually uh, John and his wife Lou 
uh, left for Hollywood, too. There was a parallel situation going on uh, along the Finger Lakes uh, near Ithaca. Uh, the Wharton studio, uh, there were two brothers who put a lot of money, apparently, into uh, building a studio uh, right along the Finger Lakes. And uh, that was that was a, a really going proposition from 1914 to 1919. Uh, they had some famous actors who went out there and made films, and uh, it, it was uh, very exciting for people in the area to watch them making their films. Mm. And, and even Hollywood, occasionally, even in the Hollywood days in the 1920s, uh, even Hollywood would come to New York State. Uh, in 1923, there was a film called A Clouded Name, and Norma Shearer, who was one of, one of the top three or four actresses in the world, I mean, this was a very powerful, famous woman. Uh, she, she came to the Syracuse area, and they filmed scenes at the state fair. So, and they also went to some, I don't know the place, but the Calthrop Mansion. And also, I do know, in Liverpool, they had salt fields, and they filmed scenes in the salt fields of Liverpool near Syracuse. So... Uh, there, there were constantly uh, film productions being in, in uh, you know, being made in New York State. Audrey Kupferberg is uh, with us, a film historian and also an archivist. Uh, you, uh, there's a quote that I'm looking for, but I can't find it directly. Where you, you said something to the effect that you just love getting your hands on old, old film strips. Yes. Yes, I do. And, you know, this brings us back to New York State. Who is the first person to invent flexible film stock? It was George Eastman from Rochester, oh. New York. Right, you know, right. so even, and that was in the 1870s, late 1870s. You know. So we go way back in New York State with, uh, with filmmaking. But yes, I, um, from 19, well, from the beginning, from the 1890s, when the first films were, around, were being made, till 1951-52, uh, films were made on nitrocellulose film stock. There were different types. Some were 35-millimeter films, some were 22-millimeter films, different sizes, but they were all made on nitrate film stock, mm. with the exception of those made for schools. They had something called diacetate film stock. But the nitrate films, they, ha they chemically decomposed over the years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would be often in a position where I would be opening a film can that hadn't been opened for 80 or 100 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was so exciting to me, uh, even though sometimes all that was in the can was brown powder. Uh, <laughs> it had completely de decomposed. So uh, being an archaeologist. Yeah. And, um, and in those days, we didn't wear masks. 
And that was, that was kind of a dangerous uh, job to have, but we loved it. Uh, my friends and I, who were archivists, we, we would just go about it as though we were playing games. I mean, it was so much fun uh, <laughs> trying to identify what, what we had located. We lost a lot of those films, or, or is that an ongoing problem for the, uh, moving images? Yeah, definitely. In, in the first hundred years or so, there was still possibility to uncover a nitrate film negative or, or film positive print. Now I think it's very unlikely uh, that anything would still be surviving, but uh, you never know. You keep your hopes up. I don't know if it was just the silent films, but then when we moved on to uh, talking movies, in the early days, the the films that were made, some of them were, what shall I say, very, <laughs> according to what happened in Hollywood later, scandalous. I mean, they were, they were very direct in talking about, you know, showing sex and violence for specifically. That, that's really, I, I find that to be a lot of baloney, because I've looked at films that are considered you know, terribly scandalous, and uh, by our standards, <laughs> you know, in in twenty twenty three, forget it. They're they're not. But there were a lot of conservative groups out there who were uh, banning films uh, on the city level, on the state level. There were censorship committees, and um, Hollywood at first just of uh, the studios just kept making their films and that was that but then the uh, complaints got louder and started affecting box office and when box office gets affected that's when um, the producers of films are going to think twice so they formed in hollywood they formed uh, censorship committees of their own and uh, before a film was made uh, the script was looked over when a film was ready to come out uh, it was screened for censorship reasons uh, and that that went on for a lot of years decades uh, before things loosened up in the 60s. And I don't know if this is um, off base also, but isn't it so that New York State in particular looked at the scripts and they've preserved scripts uh, of old movies? Yes, I, I've gone through some of those. Uh, at the New York State Library in Albany, they have a huge collection of scripts. And it's uh, it, it's wonderful for a lot of reasons for a researcher uh, because... Uh, the scripts may have sequences that were never produced, or they may have sequences that were cut and no longer exist. Uh, so it's very interesting to make comparisons, see what the intentions of the filmmakers were, and what the final product became. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are a lot of reasons why we want to use that collection they used years ago in in the 1960s that collection was housed in a warehouse uh very very poorly taken care of right. <laughs> uh, in in a warehouse and i remember using it as a college student at at uh what was called Albany State 
at that time. Hmm. But now uh, things are very much better. Is there an audience for watching silent films today? Yes, it's, it's a different kind of event. And if you're lucky enough to be in a theater with a silent film and live musical accompaniment by someone who knows what they're doing, boy, that's, that's an event. But even if you're at home and you put on a DVD or a, a Blu-ray, you can have a wonderful time. I, I mean, filmmaking was not primitive after 1914, 1915. Uh, you, you get some very high-quality entertainments. Uh, and you have the, the star system by then, which in itself is exciting. Uh, so, you know, you, you can have a great time with silent films. Is Hollywood still the center for film production, or is that passe? Uh, I think that could be debated. I would say it's it's very important still. And people whom I know, uh, who want to make careers in film, often, more often than not, have gone out west to, to Hollywood and done better there than they might have done on the East Coast or in the middle of the country. Well, it, it has become what they do. I mean, it's the... <laughs> It's like you know, they made cars in Detroit. They made movies in Hollywood. Right. It's their signature. And and why not? You know, it, it's so vast and so uh, so much money was invested in the building up of that industry out there. Acres of land, many, many miles of land along the ocean and in, in the interior a bit uh, that were useless or just used for farming or, uh, in, in some cases, Indians were living on that land. And, uh, and then there were orange or, orchards for oranges. Um, all that land was bought up and made into film production land studios. Mm. What has, has been the effect of the pandemic on the movie industry or people going to see movies in, in theaters? Yeah, I, I think we're back somewhat. But I think the pandemic uh, was, was kind of a, a spark that allowed the modern-day world to, uh, to see films as what I feel... Uh, as they should be seen in the home. We have all the inventions to see films in high quality in our living rooms. I'm, I'm not against theaters. I think a theater experience is always going to be the superior experience, mm -hmm. but it's, it's lovely just to uh, pop in a Blu-ray or stream a film in the evening on a large screen TV, it's fantastic. The producer of this program, Dave Green, is a great uh, film buff. He especially likes films that I think you enjoy as well, because you said uh, in one of or your data indicates you like movies from the silent era through about 1946. And he uh, 
has been watching a lot of film noir that seems to be very popular now on the the television movie channels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think that's interesting because uh, a lot of new films are, are being made in a film noir style. Uh, I think there's something about our current world and possibly some cynicism in our current world and a darkness, you know, uh, stemming probably from the pandemic and, uh, and political situations in our country, uh, that noir has, has had a, a second life. Mm-hmm. What, what, what is film noir? Oh, it's, it's uh, a, a genre of film that, uh, that relies heavily on uh, crime stories and uh, cynical stories and is shot camera work in a certain way it's uh there's a lot of darkness to it but stylized darkness uh darkness that implies evil sinister qualities in the world audrey kupferberg uh, joins us a uh, film historian and archivist did you have you in your career had any great discovery i mean that you did open the can of an old uh, movie and you discovered something wonderful? Oh, yeah. I, I think I could say yes to that. Probably the most publicized was uh, a Laurel and Hardy sequence uh, that had been lost. It was a Technicolor sequence from one of their late 20s films, and I don't recall the title. That made a big splash. One time, one time I had found a a Lillian Gish title that had not survived elsewhere. And I was very excited about it. But when I got the can open, it was powder. So uh, that was, that was sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, You know, sometimes what seems like the least important film uh, is, is, becomes quite important for one reason or another. Uh, like a low-budget film, not well-known, uh, but all of a sudden you realize uh, this is a film that was shot in a particular city at a particular time. So, And it's the only record of what that downtown looked like in that city. You know, so there's no telling what makes a film important. You, you continue to review movies for um, WAMC. What are some of your likes and dislikes today? It's hard to find something that I really love in in new productions. I came out strongly against a film called Babylon. Yes, uh, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. I, I was really offended by it. It's a film of, about the making of silent films into the early sound era. And it was so inaccurate and, and uh, you know, talk about, like, what should be censored. I don't really believe in censorship, but uh, the idea of some of the sexual content in that film was just kind of disgusted me. And In the first sequence, I was disgusted right away when... 
an elephant empties its bowels on the people in front of it. Yeah. I see. <laughs> you know, yeah. Come on. What, what, what's the use of making films like that? No, I, I'm not thrilled with too much of what's around these days. I'm going, in my own viewing habits, I'm going back to a lot of uh, 20-year-old British TV detective shows and a lot of uh, 1930s, 1920s Hollywood stuff. Really? Uh, Yeah, that's how I spend my evenings. (laughs) Well, I know, I think we've talked a bit, bit, uh, my wife shares your, whose name is also Audrey, by the way, uh, she shares your love of those old British detective shows. I forget what they're called. They used to be on Saturday nights, so they maybe they still are, but they aren't showing anything that she hasn't seen lately. The new one that people are talking about is the last season, the final season of Endeavor on PBS. Uh, so we have two more Endeavors to be shown, and that'll be the end of the Inspector Morse series. I've been watching Robbie Coltrane in a British show called uh, Cracker, where he plays a criminal psychologist who helps the police solve crimes. And it's incredible. So I'm very pleased with that series from maybe 20 years ago. People are still going into this business, right? Or are they going into it more than they ever did? The film business? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think more than ever because, you know why? Because it's cheaper to make films these days. If I wanted to take my phone, my iPhone, I could take it outside and and create a film on Mm. that iPhone. And if I had talent, it might be really good. (laughs) You know? I think there are lots of people young people and older people who are very interested in creating their own films. And then, of course, we have what is the effect of AI, artificial intelligence? Yeah, I don't know. I I really don't understand what goes on with AI. A friend of mine who teaches uh, told me that he had received his first AI-created essay from a student. And I, I was thinking... How, how do you even recognize if it's not the student's work but the work of AI? Uh, so, yeah, I guess, I guess we'll be creating films with AI. I'm not the one to know much about it. Well, Audrey Kupferberg, it was a pleasure uh, talking with you about silent films and uh, more recent uh, vintage uh, films. Uh, keep up the good work on the radio. Really enjoy uh, your comments. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Audrey Kupferberg is a film commentator for WAMC Public Radio and Emeritus Lecturer in Film History at the University of Albany. Previously was director of the Film Studies Center at Yale. By the way, John Russell and his wife Lillian Lou Russell, the silent filmmakers who moved from Brooklyn to Fulton County, involved local people in their films to build the sets or to play as extras. Old buildings were used for interior and exterior scenes. One film that the Russells made was The Story of a Glove in 1915. The movie did not have to do with the region's 
chief industry of glove making, but was a comedy focusing on a party-hopping husband and his wife's glove. The Russell's Blazed Trail Productions specialized in Western or American frontier films, including Cardigan in 1922, based on a book by Robert W. Chambers, who had a summer home in Broad Alban. Fulton County historian Samantha Hall Saladino said Blaze Trail Productions went bankrupt in 1925. The Russells moved to Los Angeles. John left show business, but his wife Lou continued as a screenwriter, and their son, John Russell Jr., became a cameraman. He was director of photography on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960, earning him an Academy Award nomination. The Historian's Podcast Fund Drive needs your help this year. Donate online by clicking the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com, or send a check to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Bob Cudmore.